In any good story, there are always the main characters and the minor characters. Main characters, of course, are those that the story is centered around. Uh, They're the ones who move the narrative forward. Minor characters, though, are those who help fill in the gaps. They kind of fill in the storyline, help bring vivid color to it, and heighten the narrative. They serve only a very minor, minor role. They could be left out of the story, and the story could still make sense. Then there are secondary characters. These are the characters, unlike minor characters, they're more important. If they were to be removed from the story, the story wouldn't make much sense at all. They help move the story forward. They help to bring resolution and conflict. There are more than these minor characters. But often, they are the ones that we forget about. Though not always, they are characters that, well, don't get the spotlight that the main characters get often. For example, there's no Batman without the Joker. No Luke without Darth Vader. No Harry Potter without Ron. No Maverick without Goose. While these secondary characters offer a supporting roles, they're important and essential to the story. And as we continue our study of Luke's gospel, we often conclude with, Jesus is here, he's born. And we don't spend much time thinking about some of the other characters that follow. Characters like Simeon and Anna. I mean, when's the last time you considered the the Christmas story and everybody gathered around to talk about Simeon or that really, really old prophetess, Anna? No, they're often neglected in the story. Well, because the spotlight is, is rightly on Jesus. But these characters are essential to the story. They help us understand who Jesus is, why he came. While they may be unknown to many of us, they are essential in telling the Christmas story. I think even more important than the wise men that we so often focus on. They tell the story of who Christ is and why Christ came. Now over the last month, and I know it feels like Christmas has come and gone very quickly as it It does every year. We have been studying the birth narrative of Christ. We, every other year or so, take time away from our regular sermon series to reflect upon Christ's coming, to think about why he came and the circumstances surrounding that. And Luke offers us a great conclusion to our study of 1 Samuel. In fact, Many scholars believe, and if you will just read Luke's gospel and read 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, you will see that Luke sat down with 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 when he compiled and crafted his narrative account of Jesus' birth. He draws many allusions from Hannah and her prayer, Mary and her prayer, Uh, You see the illusions of Eli in the temple and Simeon and Anna in the temple. Uh, You see these interactions that Hannah had in the temple with the newborn Samuel and the interactions that, of course, Mary and Joseph have with the newborn Jesus. All of it 
is meant with great purpose. Luke has a purpose. He doesn't do that because he was not very creative writer, because he you know, needed somewhere to start. And so he said, hey, let me just randomly pick a book in the Bible and, and uh, begin there. Rather, Luke is trying to tell us something. He is leaving breadcrumbs, if you will, in our, in our reading. So that as we read, we begin to think, well, well perhaps... What Luke is trying to get us to understand is that, that just as Samuel was the prelude to King David, so John the Baptist is the prelude to King Jesus. Jesus is David's greater son. And of course he is the great son of David. The true king of Israel has come. And so Luke has put together this narrative in great symmetry to point us to the overarching truth that we're going to consider this morning. That Jesus Christ is the savior king we all need. That's the point of the whole gospel of Luke. Jesus is the king, the savior king who you need to live. We're going to begin reading today in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Now, 21, and and you'll, goes best with 22. (laughs) And that's why we're reading it, though. In your ESV, you can see they plugged it into the bottom of 20. Um, But it fits best understanding what happened after. If you have your Bibles open, let me just show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 21. All right. Jesus is being circumcised. He's, he's being named. Now flip your Bible open, really, or over, next page over, and look at verse 39 and 40. It creates a really nice bookend, if you will. Both of it is bookend by this according to the law of the Lord. In other words, they were doing everything by the book. From his circumcision to everything that's going to take place in the temple, to their traveling home, they were doing it by the book. And so we begin with verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what he said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. 
A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to praise of, or to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they departed and performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus is the Savior King you need. That simple and short truth summarizes this passage. Jesus is the Savior King we all need. And so this morning, my hope is to convince you uh, through three reasons why Jesus should be your King. What that means, what that looks like in your life. What what does it mean to, to say that Jesus is King of the cosmos, and more importantly, what does it mean that Jesus is king of your life? Three reasons why you need King Jesus. First, you need King Jesus. You need a king who submits to the law. Secondly, you need a king who saves. And thirdly, you need a king who is supreme. You need a king who reigns supreme. In verses 21 through 24, we see a king who submits. In verse 21, we have the naming of Jesus. The point of the passage, though, seems to be not so much the circumcision, but the naming of Jesus, right? Look at me again. We are told that after eight days, Jesus was circumcised. This is not surprising behavior. Uh, Jesus was born into a Jewish family, and like any good Jew... He would be circumcised after eighth day and then named. This was in accordance with the law, but also it had served a a sense of practical reason in a high mortality rates. They often would wait to name the child uh, in order to not use that good name on a child that was was born and then passed before the eight days. So it seems as if that eight days was that marker of which uh, life would be sustained after Well, in accordance with that, they obey the law. And what we want to see here in the naming of Jesus and then, of course, in the subsequent actions by his parents is that Jesus is one who is born under the law. He is one who is born under the law for God's people. Now, Luke doesn't make any really significance to the naming of Jesus other than the fact that he's named Jesus. But, of course, we know in Matthew's gospel and Matthew Uh, Matthew records that Jesus' name has some significance to it. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Perhaps Luke doesn't include this, because Theophilus already knows what Jesus' name means. Uh, Jeshua, Joshua, uh, literally means the Lord saves. And so, in the naming of Christ, we see here, as one who submits himself, and also identifies with his people. 
Of course, the circumcision of little baby Jewish boys was very significant in the life of Israel to uniting them with the community of faith. It demonstrated that they were part of the family of God, that they were God's people. Circumcision being that sign that was given to Abraham, the sign of the covenant uh, of God's love with his people. And so here Jesus is, is circumcised to identify himself with his people. I mean, imagine this is the king of glory. He was submitting himself to this sign. This is truly Jesus taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men in all ways. Even in something so simple as circumcision, Christ identifies with his people. Well, Luke goes on to tell us that after the circumcision, um, Mary and Joseph take the newborn Christ to the temple. We see in in, in the beginning verses there, we see they're doing this as obedience to the law. Uh, They have hung out, I guess, there in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem for a number of days. It's been some 40 days now. That would have been the time period that would have went on before this purification rite would have been allowed. Remember, Mary was unclean, and so she was not allowed to go to the temple until an extended period of time had lapsed. And after a period of time, 40 days, Then Jesus was taken to the temple and presented to the priests. And we see in the text a number of things happening that seem strange to us because we don't do this. But the point I think you want to take away from this is that Jesus is again submitting himself and his parents submitting him to the law. That all of this is done in fulfillment of the law. Leviticus 12, for example. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And at the time of her menstrual impurity, she shall be unclean. And when the days of her purity are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb for a year old, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So we see Mary and Joseph here following the Levitical law in obedience with the law of Christ and or the law of God and and submitting to it. As is written, verse 23, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. More than that, Luke's point seems to be the very fact that Mary and Joseph are poor. For after all, they don't have the financial wealth to be able to pay for the lamb that was required. But more than that, we see a glimpse of redemption. In Exodus chapter 13, Moses writes, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both male and beast, is mine. You shall set apart to the Lord all the first who opens the womb And the firstborn of your animals that are males. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborns of the male and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first opened to the Lord. We see here a glimpse of redemption. This practice 
of sacrifice was a continual reminder to the people of Israel that God had redeemed them from slavery to sin. So every time a new child was born, every time a new calf was born into the world, it was a reminder of God's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. And even here, we are seeing a glimmer of that past in the nation of Israel with Jesus, the one whom that deliverance points towards. In other words, all that happened there among the exodus foreshadowed what would come in the arrival of Christ. Now, as we think about Jesus submitting himself to the law, as we think about Mary and Joseph submitting Christ to the law, we are to understand theologically what Jesus is doing here is born under the law to redeem those under the law. This is what Paul argues in Galatians chapter 4. What's so significant about Christ here in the temple is is interpreted by Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Listen to what he says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, what Christ is doing here is submitting himself so that he can identify, so that he can be a sacrifice that is holy and perfect and obedient. So that Jesus can say with all integrity, with all clarity, when he stands there on that Galilean countryside and preaches the Sermon on the Mount and he preaches to them. He says, I will not let one iota and one dot pass away from the law. I will fulfill all of it. He can say that because he did. Christ fulfilled. He submitted himself. So why do you need Christ? Because Christ obeys the law where you can't. Here's an example. If you're a Gentile this morning, that means you're not a Jew. You disobeyed this aspect of the law. But Jesus obeyed it. Jesus obeys every every letter of the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed. Where you and I disobey, Christ obeys. Therefore, what we see in this text is, is there is no one other than Christ who can save. For there is no one like Christ who has perfectly obeyed God's law. Well, before we move on, I want to point out a couple things. Well, I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Carry on. Uh, Let's carry on. Jesus is the king we all need. Now, let's look. Secondly, you need a king who saves. Secondly, you need a king who saves. In verses 25 through 26, we are told of a man there in the temple of Simeon. Righteous Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, if you flip over very quickly, I want to show you this what this consolation of Israel means. Flip over to verse 38. And coming up that very night, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of him. 
of all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke here is talking about the same thing. Consolation of Israel was the redemption of Israel. It was the the salvation that Israel longed for. The ones whom the prophet pointed to. We are told that Simeon here is waiting with anticipation. As we wait with anticipation for the Lord's second coming, so Simeon waited with anticipation for his first coming. We're told that he is a man who is righteous and devout. In other words, what consumed Simeon wasn't the fleeting pleasures of this world, but was the coming king that he longed for. For Simeon, his only hope was in this king. It wasn't in the kings of Israel. It wasn't in the kings of this world. It wasn't in their, the leadership of the Israelite people, but it was in this promised king. And what we see here with Simeon is a glimpse of God's grace given to us. That God is gracious in his fulfilling of his promises. Promises that we are told he gave to Simeon. Promises that he had given to his people. God is a God who keeps promises. He gives them out like candy. He offers them to his people. But there are no empty promises with God. Every one of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Like the promise of Isaiah. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 500 years earlier, God promised that that God's glory would be revealed. And here, as Simeon beholds the baby Jesus, we see God's promise fulfilled. Look with me at verse 29. Simeon says, Lord, now you're, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, I can die because you're faithful to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. All flesh, Isaiah said, will see it. Simeon says, I've seen it. I've seen it. The Lord fulfills his promise. And what Simeon prophesies to us in this prayer is what we want to understand as the point. And that is that the Christ is the only Savior. That salvation, the salvation that God promised, will come only through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30 again. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. In other words, God saves all people through Christ. That doesn't mean that God saves everyone. He doesn't say that. He says he saves all people. In other words, the salvation that Jesus Christ gives is indiscriminate of who you are in your nationality, in your heritage. Um, so, so Jesus didn't come to save only the Jewish people. Thanks be to God, right? We're here today and celebrating that truth. As he says, look at verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now imagine Theophilus is reading this, right? Theophilus, a Gentile, non-Jew. Whom Paul says in Ephesians 3 are without hope, without God in the world. Alien to the covenant, alien to the promises of God. In other words, that us Gentiles here today 
are not a part of the family of Abraham. We're not descendants of Abraham. Therefore, we're not a part of the promise. But thanks be to God, he grafted us into that promise through Jesus Christ so that this one who has come came not to die only for the Jews, but to die also for us as Gentiles. This is what is so glorious and good about Christ's coming. This is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 49. It is, it is a light, glorious, and I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The only salvation that you could ever experience comes through Jesus Christ. It's the only one. But friends, how often do we find other means to deliver us? Other sources to bring happiness and joy to us? In the midst of our materialistic culture, consumer-driven lives. Every night we sit under this materialistic and consumer-driven culture and and we see before our eyes or, or we see in newspapers or, or online, we just see so many things that are given to us as, as ends to happiness. There's a reason why right now casinos are filled. Lottery tickets are sold. Why malls are packed and brimming. It isn't because people want to give the best gifts. They want to give the best gifts because they want to feel good about being the best giver. Because they know if they're the best giver, then they might be the best recipient. Our culture is driven by finding happiness in other things. You think about, I always laugh this time of year when I'm watching TV and watching commercials and there's this uptick in car commercials, right? Lexuses and Mercedes. And I'm thinking, you know, the average person that's watching this probably couldn't afford any of these cars. But what they're being told is that the smile that you need this Christmas comes through that new car. Really? A new car? That's going to make you happy? It's really silly, isn't it, when we think about what this world offers us to bring joy and happiness to us. But what Christ came was to give us the true joy and happiness that we all long for. You, you were made, you were created, you were crafted by God to live under His rule. And our lives are a constant tug and pull against that rulership of God. There is a void in your life when you try to run things your own way. There's a void. That's why you are so easily submissive to addictive things. Because you were created to submit. You were created by God to live in subjection to Him. And what we do in our lives is just exchange His rule for some other rule. You see, the great lie that the enemy has told us is that we can live life our own way. In reality, none of us have ever lived life our own way. We've just exchanged one master for another, right? That's what Jesus says about money, right? You, you, you can't serve two masters. You, you're only going to serve one or the other. You're going to love money or you're going to despise it. You just can't have it both ways. 
And so it is so true of us. This is why Christ is the king we need. We need a righteous king, a king whom angels sing glory to. Now here, I'm going to get to my side real quick. I'm going to show you something real quick. Let me show you something. Look at verse 27. This isn't the point of the passage. That's why I'm not going to spend much time on it. But it's a good point. And you can go home and meditate on verse 27 today. And Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought him in. Wait a minute. Does Luke have amnesia? Because I think back here in chapter 1, this baby was born by a virgin birth. Joseph ain't his daddy. Why does Luke say that? Verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. Again, this is not Luke's point. But it is glorious nonetheless. Joseph adopts this child. Heaping upon himself all the reproach that this would have came with. A child born out of wedlock. No one would have believed in the virgin birth. No one would have been convinced really yeah that's a good story joseph wow you and mary really thought up a good one there bears the reproach and adopts the child as a foreshadow of our own adoption in christ it's beautiful to see what joseph does here and a model to us of following christ Well, as we continue here, we see also that Christ is the supreme king. Now, I want to look at here at what Simeon says in verses 33 and following and what Anna has to say, because I think their point is that Jesus is a king who is supreme. Now, I want you to see what Simeon says. After Simeon's great prayer of blessing and praise to God, he goes forward and prophesies to Mary. Makes this prophetic word to her in verse 34. Look at what he says. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon prophesies that the supremacy of Christ. It has been appointed that many will fall and many will be Raised up. Now, I'm inclined to think that that he's talking about two different groups of people here. The rich, which is a theme in Luke's gospel. The rich will be toppled and the poor will be raised. If you just would read through Luke's gospel, you'll see that theme of riches and poverty. Perhaps Theophilus was rich. And he was trying to make a point to Theophilus. You're not as important as you think you are. That those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. And that theme of riches runs throughout the, the gospel narrative here. And I think what the point of this is, is for us to understand that Christ is the supreme ruler of the Jewish people. That he is the supreme king. He is a king, right? It's not just like a title, you know, 
like one of those honorary doctorates that you might get, you know? It, look, let me tell you what will frustrate. Uh, you, you know who are the most frustrated by honorary doctorates? People who actually have doctorates, all right? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right? getting a PhD is not like, you know, easy. It's pretty hard. Um, nothing wrong with honorary doctorates. So if you have one, I guess you can use it. Um, but yeah, so the point here is, is Jesus isn't just like, you know, a king in name only. Some honorary title like, yeah, he's a king. He's the boss. No, he's a king, and he's come, and people are going to submit to him and follow him or not and be destroyed. Christ is supreme over all. This is what Paul reflects so clearly in Colossians when he gives us that great Christ hymn in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. Paul's point is that Jesus is king over creation and the new creation. Paul is, is, I think, interpreting what we understand here, Simeon, to be prophesying. That Jesus is the supreme ruler over Israel. Like I said last week, once Jesus is out, you can't put him back again. Once he's out of the box, Jesus begins to destroy. This is why Jesus will say... That unless you hate your father and mother. Or when he prophesies and tells his disciples, listen, your family is going to implode if you want to follow me. It's true. Relationships will suffer if you choose to follow Jesus. Let me see also here in verse 35 a. A foreshadow of Christ's own suffering. As I said earlier a few weeks ago, Mary is most likely the one who's supplying Luke with much of the the intimate details of the story. Luke records for us Mary at the cross, weeping for her son. As a fulfillment of this prophecy given to her, that your son will suffer and die. And it's those two points that Paul puts together in that Christ hymn for which Simeon foreshadows. But we see also Anna's prophecy. In verse 36, we are introduced to the other character in our story, Anna, a prophetess. It was not uncommon for women to be prophets in Israel. God regularly rose up them and used them for his glory. And we were told that one was named Anna. We're told about her righteousness and devotion to the Lord also, aren't we? Look again at verse 36. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then a widow until she was 84. Now, we're not really sure what that means. Does that mean that she was 84 plus seven or much older 
However you do the math, the point is this. She's really old. Right? Is that our 87-year-olds will say. 87 and 90, it's, uh, we're old. All right? And the point that Luke is making here is not so much her age, though her age is important, because her age points to how long she's been devoted. Verse 37 goes on to say that she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She was at church all the time. She was always having church, worshiping night and day. This was her devotion. She had a singular focus in her life, a singular attention, and it was God and God alone. She was a model, I think. Luke is pointing in, in such detail. A character that, as I said at the beginning, is, is really a minor character, maybe secondary at most. Moves the story forward, yes. But if Luke's overarching point is that Jesus is king, don't you think he probably wants to include what it looks like to submit to Jesus as king? I think this was what it looks like to follow Jesus. It looks like someone who is caught up with nothing else in life than the eternal God. Someone who is not consumed by the riches of wealth in this world. She could have remarried. She, should have, she could have gone on with her life. But she said, you know what? God has taken my husband and I'm a widow. And I'm going to use my widowhood for one particular purpose. And that is to give him glory and honor she used tragedy to bring about joy and life and happiness to so many. I think also it's a reminder to us that God uses us at all ages in our lives. Regardless of our age, God uses us. And, and I know that... It, that Having served with, with senior adults for many years, sometimes our senior saints are neglected. But also, they can fall into the temptation that, you know, I'm just too old to serve God. And while you may not be able to serve God in the exact ways you've always done, there's always a place to serve God. Thibidi Anabwile, a pastor here locally in Anacostia River Church in D.C., wrote this as he reflected on, the tick, on this text. Shame on the church for any ways we have shut out our older members. They are gifts from God meant to give the church family gravity, stability, wisdom, and faith. One wonders if the church isn't as weak as she sometimes is because she so often has no place for older people. It's a good reminder to us as a congregation, young and old, we need everyone. And we're tempted, and I know sometimes we can be tempted to think, man, we need to get young. Well, sometimes in order for church to be healthy, it needs to get old first. And a lot of our church planners need to hear that word of exhortation because they're filled with a bunch of young people. And with a bunch of young people, comes a, a bunch of young people problems. And so we can be thankful for our senior adults. Well, the text concludes in verse 38 with Hannah's prophecy. A prophecy filled with thanksgiving for the supremacy of Christ. 
And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. In divine coincidence, Anna stumbles upon the Christ child and begins to give thanks to God and to speak of him. She gives glory to God because she knows that her hope has come. All the years that she has spent praying night and day has come to fruition. What was she praying for? Perhaps she was praying that Christ would come. Friends, this is the godly response to King Jesus. One of submission, obedience, and worship. She's a model for us of what it means to follow Jesus as king. It means that we submit to him. We actually do what he says. We don't just give him a cursory kind of honorary title. That he's my Lord. But we submit to his lordship. In other words, Jesus defines who we are and how we live. And he does it in his word. And so we actually open his Bible. We open his word and we say, all right, I want to follow Jesus. What's it mean to follow him? We turn to a text like Matthew or Mark chapter eight, where he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. We've got to give up our hopes and our dreams and our desires and what we want to do with our life and how we want to be successful and do all of our things. And we have to submit to him and say, you know, I'm going to go your way. And that doesn't mean that you're going to get blessed and you're going to have the blessed life. This week I was reading through 2 Chronicles and came upon Hezekiah. And Hezekiah did a lot of good in the nation of Israel. He reformed the nation of Israel. And they had this, the, the most radical worship service and revival the nation of Israel had seen in generations. And the author makes this, this intentional statement. It says, after all these wonderful things, Shennacherib, king of Syria, came down and went to battle with Israel. On the mountaintop of revival was met with great despair and suffering. Friends, following King Jesus isn't going to lead to some holy, happy life. In fact, sometimes and oftentimes, the life that King Jesus invites us to is the very life that he lived. A life of suffering and shame. You see, what comes before glory is suffering. What came before the throne, what came before that coronation scene we read in Revelation chapter 5 was humility suffering, then comes glory. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what we see pictured in Simeon and Anna. Men and women who, who in the eyes of the world were sad and really quite depressing that they had wasted their lives in devotion. I mean, Hannah, you could have given yourself to raising a family instead of wasting your time praying all the time. Friends, the king we need is the king who reigns supreme over all things. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And, and as we close out this, this year, I know it's so tempting and 
you know, we get the gym membership going or something like that. I don't know. I think I need it as well. But uh, as we close out 2018, as we think about resolutions, they're good. There's nothing wrong with making some good resolutions this year. I want you to reflect on this text as you make them and think about what you really need. In other words, you know, what you need in 2019 isn't a new set of habits. Better eating, fitness plan, Bible reading, prayer, whatever you, you think you need. What you need most in 2019 is a new king. Because the reason why you ain't eating right, working out and doing the right things in your fitness, the reason why you're not reading your Bible and, and spending time in prayer because you don't have King Jesus as your king. You see, all those, those new habits flow out of a submission to Jesus as king. And so resolve this new year to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I've stumbled a bit this year in my following of you, Christ, but I want to resolve to follow you this new year, to, to deny myself, to take up the cross and follow you. I want you to be my king. Friend, find in Christ the king you need. For there is no other king in this world but him. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray today as we conclude our time together that you would bear fruit in our lives. Father, I long to see fruit in the year ahead in the lives of these saints as they grow closer to you, as you sanctify them, as we become more holy and set apart. Lord, as we live lives of submission to King Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified. And now we give all glory in our lives to Christ, who is our King. And it's his name we pray. Amen.